Welcome to The Chef Satchel Show, a podcast that inspires creators to follow their passion. His name is Feroz, a chef and entrepreneur. Join him as he sits down with creators to talk about their process, experience, and passion on how they've made multiple impacts. Here he is now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Chef Satchel Show. With me today, I have Justin he has graduated from the culinary arts management program and has been awarded a few times regarding his culinary journey he also is on super beast mode with the recipes that he comes up with in the pastry section along with the savory section here we have with us today is justin justin how's it going i'm great thanks how are you fabulous so how how did you go about with your how did you get started did you already know you wanted to be a cook when you were born or or, or how did you how did you go about with your journey uh, so I grew up at my dad's restaurant and both my father and grandfather uh, were both chefs and had restaurants my father still has a restaurant and uh, growing up as a kid around the restaurants he kind of just became second nature uh, help you out of the dining room, help you out in the kitchen, at, like as young as six or seven years old, as soon as I could help washing dishes, helping with minor prep and that kind of stuff. And I think that's where it all kind of started, just kind of looking up to my father and grandfather. All right. So what kind of what kind of work uh, besides doing dishes? Like, did your dad ever let you like, hey, can you cut some vegetables and stuff or... Yeah, absolutely. Lots of uh, lots of peeling carrots and lots of chopping celeries and bok choy and carrots and that kind of stuff. Uh, and honestly, I started helping out with other prep. And as soon as I was tall enough to work on the walk, I was helping with the walk and dropping egg rolls and cooking chicken balls and that kind of stuff. And that was your aha moment, like, hey, this this is something that I definitely want to get into. It, it became more of a kind of helping out the family business more than anything at first I didn't actually think I was going to become uh, a chef I actually wanted to become an architect before that oh wow yeah that's awesome and then so what got you driven to okay I got to perfect my skills to go to culinary school or what was your motivation to go into uh, the culinary school I started working at a hotel in Kingston which is where I grew up um I was just a regular teenager in high school, and uh, I started playing drums in a rock band, and we needed money to go on, on a, a mini tour across Ontario. So I was like, I tried to figure out what I was good at, and I, I knew how to work in a kitchen, so I started working at a French restaurant in a hotel in Kingston, and that's when I kind of first saw uh, the more fine dining aspect of the, the food industry, and that's kind of when I started thinking, oh, maybe this is something I can actually do, and... Uh, do for the rest of my life and I think after that seeing seeing a more high caliber French fine dining is when I started actually thinking about going to culinary school and then when you were in your French uh, cooking uh, in your French restaurant was there any crazy experiences that you were like before entering you were like oh yeah I got this and then you were you were like uh, uh, you know like holy crap this is not what I expected actually you know it's actually pretty familiar I think growing up the restaurant really set me up to be uh, good under the pressure of the kitchen. All right. And and so as, as per your journey, you also went on to being on the San Pellegrino, uh, being a contestant on the San Pellegrino and a semi-finalist. How, how was that experience for you? 
that was a really great experience. Um, so yeah, San Pellegrino, Best Young Chef, they did a, it was the first year they launched it, and I was fortunate enough to become one of the top 10 Canadian chefs to compete, making it to the semifinals. Um, it was the first and only competition of cooking that I've ever participated in, so it was a very new experience for me. But um, at the time, I was really focusing in pastry, so I decided to do a pastry dish. I think the, my final dish was uh, it was an almond. It had to do with almonds, green tea, strawberries, and uh, a Japanese play on cheesecake. But um, yeah, it was the the thing about the competition, which with many competitions, it's it teaches you to work under the the rules and the guidelines of the competition and. They're very strict about what you can bring and how long you have. And there's a lot of people watching you at, at this competition specifically. They had, I think, seven cameramen on me at all times. And they were streaming it to a gala full of, I think, 200 guests watching this, this competition. And then eventually, when you finish your dish, you bring it to the judge's table, which uh, in front of another 200 people watching and you explain your dish and they eat it and they critique it. And so there's a lot of pressure. Um not not every day that you see in the kitchen, for example, having to be in front of 200 people watching you cook versus being in a kitchen where you're just cooking alongside of five or six cooks. Um, but yeah, more than anything, it was an amazing opportunity and amazing experience. I met, I met a lot of great people for networking and I had a lot of support from my mentors and friends and family. So what made you, what made you uh, decide to get, go, go ahead for this competition? I think it was my chef at the time, uh, Kieran uh, Social, was showing me that they had started doing this call, this open call for this, and he said that you should definitely go try it out. And it was a simple application online, and I applied and then didn't think anything of it. And then months later, I got a phone call saying that they wanted me to come in to, uh, to go to the next process to eventually become a semifinalist. That's amazing. And uh, yeah. how long did it take for you to uh, come up with the dish? Or what was the inspiration behind uh, the particular dish for the competition? Uh, it was actually inspired by somebody my grandmother used to always make. She always made a, uh, a sponge cake that tasted a lot like a cheesecake. And she always served it with uh, strawberries with a bit of salt. And we always drank green tea with it. So I think at the time... It was more of a nostalgic thing for me and thinking back about what something my grandmother served me as a kid all the time and then just a more refined play on that. That's amazing. And and uh, that was what the judges tasted and that's how you kind of manipulated the entire dish into one plate with all these experiences. Yes, exactly. That's awesome. So moving away from the San Pellegrino competition, you have been a part of the Canadian Arctic Watch for the past seven years. That's a huge dedication to something like that. What is What was it that got you into the Canadian Arctic Watch? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good question. I very much am a city boy. I've never been, before the Arctic, I had never been camping. I had never been an outdoor person whatsoever. I don't even think I owned a pair of rain boots before going up to the Arctic. Um, so it was very out of my element, to say the least. I showed up my first year for the job um, completely uh, like not prepared to be in the middle of nowhere in the Arctic, let alone uh, running a kitchen. But basically, the opportunity came up. Someone I had worked with uh, 
in the previous as a, a in Ottawa had reached out to me and asked if I wanted to come up as a sous chef and I looked up the place and I was like wow like this is this is an incredible opportunity I've never been anywhere over here I definitely can't afford to go anywhere like this so why not go and work there and um, yeah I did my first year there and it was it was a shock for sure but I uh, I really fell in love with being in the nature of the Canadian Arctic is just completely stunning and unpopulated and unpolluted and the fishing and everything about it was was phenomenal. And uh, after my first year, they offered me to come back, a uh, position to come back and take over as executive chef of the company. And I kind of just fell into it. And, um, and then one year after another, I didn't think I'd be there for seven years, but here we are seven years later. And the, the program of the food and beverage program, I ended up taking it over and, and it became something uh, new and improved as to what they were trying to achieve in the previous years. And the whole, everything in the operations became more of a high-end luxury lodging, whereas before it was more family operated. And they they were in the middle of moving in this direction as at the same time as when I joined their team. So it was a perfect timing and we both had the same idea. Um but yeah, the, the island, it's, it's, in, it's 800 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle, so it's, it's very far from anything. There's no roads, there's no buildings, there's no, there's no post office. Everything is flown into this island, including the staff and the food and equipment. We bring in internet and fuel, everything like from running water. There is no running water. We have to go and make sure that there's running water and there's no electricity unless we bring in our generators and fuel to run the generators and that kind of things. So it's a completely secluded operation. Um, so there is a lot of planning involved, which kind of made it this everyday chaotic adventure of what do we have to focus on today? Is, is the water going to be running in three hours? Is the electricity going to be running in four hours? And is our food going to come in on time or is the weather going to be bad? And all of a sudden there's a delay on food. And what do we do if this happens? Um, and then on top of that, are there polar bears? Uh, are there polar bears coming into the into the <laughs> radius of the lodge and stuff like that? Which does happen. Uh, it's like that's not a joke. We are living in polar bear territory. Um, so yeah, it's it's very very different from a restaurant experience. But at the same time, my responsibility was to make sure that we had uh, great food, great wine, great service in a very remote region. That's awesome. I, I should have I should have asked this question before, but could you tell our listeners what uh, what is Arctic Watch exactly? Like, what is this concept all about? Yeah, so Arctic Watch is one of the three lodges that we run under this company called Weber Arctic, and they focus on polar and wildlife adventures. So, basically, we run uh, three different lodges between the months of April to October in the High Arctic. It's a fly-in uh, lodge, so everyone that comes to this lodge has to get themselves to Yellowknife. And then from Yellowknife, we have a private charter flight that will take the guests from Yellowknife to the lodge, which is about a four- or five-hour flight in a little, very small plane that will then eventually land on Somerset Island where Arctic Watch is. And people come from all over the world, from Canada to U.S., Asia, South America, all over. And they come to see mainly wildlife. So we have, we're right on the inlet and there's up to 2,000 beluga whales that migrate through it on their way to Greenland. And you can 
watch the whales you can kayak next to the whales you can get into the water and see the whales and it's really something magical um other than whales there's lots of other wildlife there's wolves there's uh polar bears there's this there's muskox there's tons of animals and then it's the same for our other two lodges as well there's grizzly bears and northern lights and there's fishing and it's um you can go atving you can go water rafting there's all kinds of different things that people like to do um and we kind of cater that experience based on the guest that's crazy and what what uh year or what season does this uh does this take place in so we do it in uh we have a spring season at one of our lodges which has northern lights and then we have a summer season at arctic watch which is 24 hours sunlight um so the entire time we're at the one lodge there is no darkness it's sunlight every hour of the day um and then we switch to our third lodge for the fall season which has nighttime and daytime but it has phenomenal northern lights for about two months that's amazing and you mentioned uh the 24 hour sunlight like how does that play a role on when you're you know in the kitchen or like how 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 do you go about with that yeah uh the first year is definitely challenging you uh have a hard time falling asleep and you have a hard time your body kind of registering what time of the day it is but i by the end of like by i think my second or third year i really just became accustomed to it but it's definitely a mentally uh, confusing aspect of the job waking up at any time of the night and looking outside and it being completely bright out uh is something something definitely different does that like uh, affect your schedule like you're all of a sudden you're you're prepping and you're like oh it's still sunlight outside and all of a sudden you realize <laughs> it's like 1am and you're like oh i think i should go to bed now yeah exactly yeah you really have to pay attention to the clocks for sure otherwise it just drains you out huh yeah that's awesome so how tell me a little about how did you go about with the planning part because i know it's a fine lodge so that's that's a lot of planning that's required and literally i i feel like it it should be on point with not running out of food being in like the most secluded part of the world tell us a little about what's the exact process on how you went about with the planning stage yeah of course um it's very tricky probably one of the hardest parts of the job each year i would spend months before we fly up to open these lodges for the season and i would crunch numbers based on bookings and dietary needs and figure out exactly how much food we would need each week that we were there um part of my job is actually 2 to 3 months of logistics just to sort out food and menus and staffing prior to we prior to even flying up there ourselves to set up the place um but in the early stages it was not something that i had to deal with in working in the city so It was very much trial and error my first year. Um thankfully I was the sous chef the first year so I had someone actually more in charge of that aspect so it gave me a chance to kind of learn from them. But I mean more was always better than not enough in this case as long as nothing went to waste. But the main issue was we had weight limitations every week because of the flights. There's only one plane that comes in every 7 days and that's also the same plane that brings new guests and takes the previous guest. So some weeks there would only be 500 pounds to work with but we're feeding 45 to 50 people three meals a day for 7 days and if the weather was bad or if the there was a lot of snow in the forecast the planes would actually need more fuel which means we would have less food weight to work with so it was definitely you had to become creative there was weeks where we would get we'd have to cut 300 pounds and 
sometimes the heaviest things were flour and sugar and potatoes and eggs and that kind of stuff. And you just had to, you had to work without those ingredients, but not let the quality of the menu be jeopardized at the same time. That's crazy. What was your craziest experience with uh, running out of certain ingredients and you had to get uh, super creative with that? Uh, there was one week in the last seven years I remember very clearly. We had no eggs, no milk, no cream, and no sugar. And that was for seven days, and I still had to put out breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, the main tricky thing was breakfast, of course, and then desserts each night with no sugar and no eggs and no cream. But uh, And the other thing that's actually really challenging is that the Internet is really limited while we're there. It's very slow, and when it does work, it's really slow. And when it, and a lot of the time, it doesn't work because we're on satellite internet, so remote. Um, so it's not like when I'm here in the city, I just, I just, if I don't know something, it's just, you just Google it, and That's it's, right. it's right there. All the, all the information is there. Whereas, if the weather's bad, or if it's at all cloudy, or if the internet just decides that it doesn't feel like working, <laughs> you only have what you have in your head. Like there's no. You have a couple books, and you don't, but you can't rely on the internet, which is something that most people don't have to deal with on an everyday basis. But um, yeah, we got we got really creative. We uh, we found other ways to make things sweet, like honey and maple, and we uh, we didn't have we didn't have this like we have a menu planned for the week, and so basically we had to redo the entire menu with only what we had to use. But um, I don't think anyone noticed, and at the end of the week, we we had a we had a couple of drinks and celebrated when the <laughs> when the thing came with the new food. That's crazy. It must be really hard to get creative with the menu, running out of all these kind of ingredients and stuff. So it takes around. You mentioned seven days. So did you have to get the shipment? Like, were you able to get the shipment on the next uh, in the next seven days? Yeah, we were. Yeah, it came in. Uh, so I think we we were seven days without those ingredients, and then we had to resupply immediately after that that's crazy what tell me a, a like a, a life in the day of being at the arctic like how did you start your day to how did it end yeah of course um so i usually wake up around six thirty and get to we all live in we have all little kind of staff cabins and housing on the island and it's only like a, a two minute walk from your cabin to the the main lodge and so I'd get up around 6.30, 7 at the latest, uh, get to the kitchen around 7.15, get all the equipment started, turn on all the generators so that we can use the electricity in the kitchen, turn on the propane, uh, get the ovens lit, get all the pilot lights lit, and then start cooking breakfast. Um, so it's, it's 30 guests for clients and then about 15 staff members. So you're cooking about 45 people meals a day. The staff and the guests, uh, they actually eat the same food, so there's no, there's no staff food and guest food. We just we treat everyone the same, um, and we so it's all family style. So around eight o'clock, we're we're getting everything going, getting everything cooked. A normal typical breakfast is some kind of egg preparation. So whether it's hard boiled eggs, soft boiled eggs, scrambled eggs, um, there's always some kind of muffin or scone. There's always all kinds of fruit platters, uh, in-house made yogurts, granolas, and then there's always a specialty item, whether it be a waffle or a pancake, and then bacon, sausage, the whole the whole breakfast thing, and of course, juice, coffee, and tea, and toast, and fresh-made bread. So there's a lot of different little details 
to everything we do because we don't bring anything in store bought for the most part. We uh, we make everything fresh on the island with the ingredients we have, and then breakfast goes up at eight thirty sharp, and the guests come in and they eat breakfast, and they usually eat for about an hour. So by nine thirty, the guest operations or the uh, the lead guides will come in and offer the daily adventures for the day, and the guests would sign up for one of the three adventures off a day and they could be ATVing down the coast of the island or they could be rafting down the river or seeing beluga whales or they could go fishing or they could go sneak up on muskox and take photos or go look for polar bears. Um, so they'd have their daily options for trips and the guests would sign up. And then depending on which trip they signed up for, they would get ready and get the right gear and preparation and clothing and equipment and then they would go on their separate ways. Meanwhile, the kitchen would be preparing the lunches for the guests to go out for the day. So the lunch uh, for five of the seven days of the week are actually out on the land. So they were basically gourmet picnics. They would have a fresh-made soup, some fresh bread, and then they'd have three different cheeses and meats. Um, the, the cheeses are imported from all across the world, anywhere from France to Spain, from Canada. Uh, we had Canadian cheeses as well. And that's some of the stuff that I would focus on pre-season would be just importing specialty ingredients from, from all across the world. We'd get special uh, cured hams from Barcelona and special cheeses from France. And that all comes into play when we end up getting to the actual days where we're making these lunches. And then, um, so we prepare these lunches, get everything going. They'd have a nice little kind of picnic lunch on the land on whichever adventure they've gone on. And then they come back around 4 o'clock, um, around 4 p.m. They're back and have like wine and cocktails at the lodge. Meanwhile, between lunch and dinner, the kitchen staff would be getting dinner ready. And then uh, around 6.30, there's dinner and everyone comes back into the dining room and we have a family dinner. And then we do plated desserts for a final course. And then there's usually some kind of activity at the end of the evening, whether it be a presentation or sightseeing or some maybe a whale beluga wash with a glass of wine. And then the kitchen is usually putting desserts out by 7.30, finishing up around 8 p.m. and closing the kitchen down by 9. That's awesome. And then I'm sure after hours, you're prepping for the next day and the, you know, the guests are obviously relaxing. While you're yeah, still exactly. hustling in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's crazy. So your route, uh, the routine of your trips were like, you would come to Ottawa, Canada, but you would basically just see a glimpse of the summer and then it's almost winter and then you're going back into winter. So that I get, yeah, listeners I know it's like, even in spring in Arctic, it's super cold. So how yeah. did that affect you? Yeah, there was actually, yeah, it's, it was hard for sure. Seven years of no summer and very little spring. One year I came back in October and I think I snowed three weeks after I came back and it was snowing the day I left the Arctic. So I actually only had three weeks of that year without snow. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's a mental, it's a mental strain for sure. It's a lot of cold and dry winters and when you're up there, it's also cold. It is the Canadian Arctic summer, so it's, it's technically summer, still very cold uh, in comparative to what we, what we expect from, from weather of the summer. Um, but yeah, it's, I usually went on a trip somewhere warm, 
or try to escape for a couple of weeks and get some sun. And then yeah. uh, before you know it, we were preparing for the next Arctic season throughout the winter and right back up there into the snow again. That's crazy. How did you how did you go about uh, hiring your staff for the Arctic? I'm sure they must be given a huge heads up like, hey, like this is what you're getting into. So you better make sure you know what, what you're doing. Yeah, that was another challenge for sure. I mean, making us hiring for a team of kitchen is one thing, but hiring for a team of kitchen and staff to work in a remote region uh, is a whole different thing. It's almost um, you can have tons of experience and be a superstar in a kitchen in Ottawa or Toronto, but to have to work somewhere on an island with no population where if you run out of something, you can't just call Cisco or you can't just run to the market. If you run out of water, like things that you don't think of in a city kitchen, like, oh yeah, you need water? No problem. Just turn the tap on. But it's, it's not as simple as that. There's times where the water would stop running and I would have to spend half an hour to an hour to figure out if it's something that I could solve or if I can't solve it to find someone who can solve it on the team. And then you never know how long it's going to be until the water's back running and the kitchen still needs to operate. But then um, that's just one thing like water and fuel and propane, like all these things that in a regular kitchen is automatic, whereas it's, it's not up in the Arctic. So you have to find people that are problem solvers more so than anything. Uh, people who are resilient and that can work the long hours and the long days and you never know when your next day off is going to be. So it, it was definitely challenging. I, I went more so along the route of finding people I could trust and rely on more than a perfect resume. And the I think for the entire seven years, my sous chefs were people that I had cooked with in the city. And once they started seeing what I was doing up there, resumes started flying in and people started reaching out all the time to be to ask if they could come work with me in the arctic so it wasn't hard to, to find people that were interested but it was hard to find the right team because not only do i need to find people that are going to fit in with me they need to fit in with a team of 16 staff that are going to live next to each other on this island day in and day out every single hour of the day for three to six months at a time that's crazy. And you did mention uh, the cooks do get a day off. So what a day? What, what does a day off look like being in like the secluded part of the world? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So basically, every single person on the staff, we would aim to have a day off each week. So you work six days on one day off. And that day off, uh, you can do anything you want. Uh, to some extent, I guess. So if you were a first year staff member, we wouldn't let you just wander off on your own because you could get eaten by a polar bear or you could fall <laughs> off a cliff and die. But um, if you were there for a couple of years, we were we would know what your limitations are and we would more be more um, open to you just going off on an adventure on your own. Even better, if you have a day off with another staff member, you two of you would go on an adventure together. But you could also just go with the guest and experience exactly what the guests are experiencing, but for free because you're working, so you don't have to pay to be there. Um, but the guests basically would have their three options each day, and there's always a couple spots open on each of those trips. So if you wanted to, to go rafting and see beluga whales or go fishing, you had those options as well on your day off. Um, but some people just wanted to do their own thing and you relax around the lodge. It's We're on this amazing island and it's completely beautiful. Like you walk out any door and it's stunning. 
So people kind of just did their own thing based on what they were feeling. A lot of the people that were there for the first year would go on these daily adventures with the guests because it's the best way to see as much as you can in your first year on the island. And then usually if you had been there for a couple of years, you kind of just did your own thing. That's crazy. Now, since you're back in town, how does it feel to basically hand over the responsibilities um, to another chef and then you being uh, a full, a completely dedicated to in the city uh, person kind of situation? How, how does that feel? Uh, it's definitely nerve wracking. I'm, I'm always on my phone checking my emails and answering emails and trying to help out where I can because for seven years, it's just it's just kind of been embedded in me to that this thing doesn't turn off like we're year round working on this project. So it's definitely been uh, an adjustment trying to step back and and let uh, and let it kind of run its course and help out when I can, where I can. But uh, it's, it's definitely an odd feeling having less responsibility and just kind of focusing on what I'm doing here in Ottawa now. <laughs> so what was the main reason behind uh, stepping back from uh, the Arctic Watch? I think the main thing was uh, after seven years of living out of a duffel bag and having everything I owned in storage in various cities, I just kind of wanted to, to sit down and, and have a year where I'm just, I'm, this is where I live now for one whole year and I'm going to work in this spot and just kind of have a routine again. It was, it was an amazing seven years. I learned and saw so many things that I would have never in a regular chef position even experienced. And it made me a much stronger chef. It made me much more organized and dependent. And it taught me so many problem-solving skills that I that I will never, ever trade for anything. And I saw how beautiful parts of Canada could be that I never even thought of. And seeing polar bears and beluga whales and catching fresh arctic char every single day and putting it on the menu that night was something incredible and uh i really did fall in love with the canadian arctic but yeah in the end i think it was just kind of mentally straining to to move every couple months based on where i needed to be and contracts and that kind of stuff and not having a place to call home and to come home to so I think that was the ultimate decision to kind of step back and take a break from contracts. So will you? do you think uh, you as a chef will be heading back into the Arctic again? I have no plans currently, but honestly, you never know. <laughs> that means that we do see some, some kind of feeling that, yeah, yeah, he's going to return back to that kind of situation. But now, since you're back in town, um, what, like, what are you basically looking into? What, what are your plans like? Uh, currently, I'm, I'm working at Atelier in Ottawa, which is fantastic. It's an amazing restaurant. My first mentor was at Courtyard, Michael Hay, and he was uh, he worked there when Mark Lapine was actually at Courtyard. So it was Mark wasn't my first mentor, but he was my first mentor's mentor. So it felt very familiar, and I've known Mark for years. And uh, he had I had talked to him, and he needed someone to. They were flipping some staff and there were some new people and changes and they needed someone and I was there at the right time and we had known each other for many years and basically I said I'd come in and help out for a couple months but I'm going to end up staying for a lo definitely longer than a couple months and maybe even for the whole year and 
it's, it's really nice to come back to fine dining, come back to mo- more molecular cooking and refined cooking and cooking in a restaurant versus cooking on an island in the middle of nowhere. So it's, it's really nice to come back to this and be able to just focus on food and details and stuff like that and not worry about is the food running out or if there's a polar bear at the door, <laughs> if, if there's water anymore, what's going to happen and if there's going to be a flood or this kind of stuff. So, I mean... Uh, right now I'm just going to relax and I'm really looking forward to spring and summer and Atelier's got this beautiful garden that I'm really looking forward to and I haven't seen seasonal veg in seven years so it'll be really nice to, to see the Ontario seasons and summer seasons and enjoy some warmth this summer. That's awesome. So you mentioned, so you were into pots and fire and you know, uh, cooking but since you moved into molecular gastronomy what's what's the change because you know it's it's mostly not a lot of fire i'm assuming but there is a certain amount of cooking but it 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 takes a completely new direction in what you're used to tell us a little more about that yeah yeah for sure so basically i mean at atelier for example there is not a single uh the only flame is from a torch not i'm thinking of it we have a medium-sized oven and everything else is induction. So there's no actual stovetops and flames. And it makes it very different than the kitchens that I've come from. I've worked in fine dining before, but it was all very traditional in the sense of you have stoves and you have ovens and all this. But we have things for the things that we don't have in a trad- traditional kitchen. We have things that are very abnormal in the sense like we have the anti-griddles and we have the sous vide machines and we have a roto vaporizer and liquid nitrogen and all kinds of ingredients that you don't see in an everyday kitchen. So really it just gives you an opportunity to uh, try new things. And, and I mean like the floating balloons, for example, and the helium and playing with different things to make food uh, experience a whole new thing and a whole kind of theatrical in ways, which is really nice. It's uh, it just lets you be even more creative with creating dishes and, also, it being a 12-course tasting menu, you really get to think about the flow of each course and how they flow into each other, and you can really balance them out um, where you're you're more so curating the dining experience for guests, whereas if they're going to a restaurant and ordering a couple things, they are more in charge of what their meal's going to taste like, where with a 12-course tasting menu, we are the ones deciding and curating this whole dinner experience, which makes it a really special experience. That's awesome. So how what what inspires you now to come up with different dishes? Because obviously it's no more of flames and, and, and burners. So how, how does that switch from being into a kitchen which only uses like a, a torch flame or just an induction burner for that matter? I think I rely more on the experiences I've lived to come up with these dishes. For example, I'm currently working on a dish around Arctic char, which is definitely a reference to the last seven years of me cooking in the Arctic and foraging for fresh sorrel and catching the char myself and the preparations behind it and that kind of stuff. And you just kind of take those experiences and, and incorporate them into the men, the menu now, um, rather than just relying on the, the more traditional things that we learned in culinary school of like flambéing and that kind of stuff and torching and stoves and, um, there's there's really no limitation from the things that we lack at Atelier. It's more just there's actually just more opportunity to to try new things with with all the equipment that we have. 
That's right. Do you still prefer being, if you had to choose between molecular gastronomy or, or the regular kitchen routine, what, what's your pick on it? I think I would have to choose molecular because I think that you have the best of both worlds and there's, you don't need to be over ambitious. You, once you understand how to use these things, it's really just another tool you're using. No different than uh, all the all the tools on the regular stove. You're you're still getting the end product of you. You're still cooking something and incorporating flavor to it, rather than it's just now you have an option to freeze something at minus two hundred or or to make something float with helium. Um, but in the end, we're just making really aesthetically pleasing food that tastes amazing. That's awesome. So. What do you wish you would have known before starting off on the journey from Arctic to landing up in uh, molecular gastronomy cooking? Uh, I guess, I, I guess I wish I would have started traveling earlier. The, uh, the list of places I want to visit and see for the first time and experience their food and cuisine and, and watch them cook on a local level is it's an endless list. I, I I've been traveling a lot for the last seven years, and I feel like the list will never end. So I guess maybe if I had started traveling earlier, it would be a shorter list. But other than that, I think that uh, it's it's really what you make out of it. I mean, you learn. You can work at the best restaurants, but if it's all about how you you look at it and your attitude, and it's it's up to you to learn as much as you can as well. That's awesome. So what's next for you? What, what, what's in the books of uh, Mr. Justin from here on? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I'm still kind of decompressing from seven years in the Arctic. So I think I'm just going to be spending the next couple seat, like the next bulk of the year in, in Ottawa at Atelier. And like I said, looking forward to spending the spring and summer in the garden of Atelier and just relaxing and kind of get back into a routine but eventually i think i'll spend a year in england or germany cooking again and then eventually along some way down the road i want to open my a restaurant on my own that's fabulous and what 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 would the concept of the restaurant be would you be gearing more towards um molecular gastronomy or would be a bit of a mix of uh, you know regular cooking i think yeah i think it'd be a mix there would definitely be some molecular influences and in modern cuisine um but it'd be It'd be something in between, not not completely molecular, but a mix between fine dining and, and modern cooking. That's fabulous. Is there anything I should have asked that I did not? And is there something that you'd like to tell the listeners? No, I think I think you really covered uh, all the bases today. <laughs> all right. My final question to you. What is one inspirational quote or something that you feel you should tell the young cooks or the chefs out there? Huh. Um, I think, I think balance is really important. If there's anything that, uh, I've regretted in the past is the balance between your personal life and your work life. And I've, I very much am guilty of putting my work life first over the last decade. And, and I've missed a lot of birthdays and I've, I've neglected friends and, you know, you, you get so focused in work. Like I've missed funerals. I've missed birthdays. I've missed weddings like more than I want to admit. And you, you just get so focused in work and it becomes your life, which is, which is important. But at the same time, it's important to have balance because at the end of the day, 
you do need to uh, you need to have balance in, of your personal life and your work life and finding out what those priorities are is something that comes along the way and um, I think I'm figuring that out slowly as we go but it's something that I definitely recommend something not to be overlooked by the young cooks and cooks of the future that's fabulous well we really really appreciate the time that you've dedicated towards this podcast and i really appreciate all the information that you've given to us thank you no it's, it's been uh, it's been great talking to you and i love everything that you guys have been doing likewise all the best to you and your future endeavors and we really hope uh, to see that restaurant opening up real soon uh, yeah i will let you know when that comes up <laughs> all right thank you so much justin Thanks a lot.